This is Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, a series of interviews that explores the racialized inequities intrinsic to our nation and our collective responsibility to create a more just future. This conversation was recorded via Facebook Live on Tuesday, October 26th at 2.30 p.m. Please like, follow, and share the Episcopal Divinity School at Union Facebook page for future live streams. These videos are also found on the Episcopal Divinity School at Union YouTube page. On this episode of Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas, Dean Douglas speaks with Dr. Brittany Cooper, Associate Professor at Rutgers University and co-editor of the Crunk Feminist Collection. They discuss the current cultural conditions in America during the age of COVID-19, confronting the system of white supremacy in schools and churches, and the role and potential impact the faith community has in this confrontation. Just Conversations during the fall semester will dive deeper into the essays and themes discussed in our fall community read, The 1619 Project, from the New York Times. As one of the key themes found throughout the 1619 Project is the importance of telling an accurate and truthful account of American history. This conversation will focus on issues of identity and gender politics, specifically around issues facing Black women. Thank you, Dr. Brittany Cooper, for joining me in this conversation this afternoon. Thank you, Dr. Douglas. It's such a pleasure. So let me jump right in. What a time, what a time, as our grandparents might say, that we find ourselves in, in this COVID pandemic reality and more. So I want to start there. You said in a blog that you wrote during the first Holy Week and Easter season in the COVID pandemic, that when we were all asked to mask, you said that putting on our mask is unmasking so much about who we are as a country and as a body politic. I have a two-part question, perhaps one question asked in two ways. First part is this, what did COVID unmask about our country? Yeah, um, you know, I think it it masked an unhealthy uh, descent into individualism, um, a deep selfishness uh, and lack of empathy that borders on narcissism. you know, we have built uh, increasingly societies where people are atomized and individualistic. And so they don't, they are not in community with folks. And so there is a way in which we don't feel a collective responsibility to each other. And so I watched as the public health messaging said, don't just put a mask on for yourself, put a mask on for your neighbor. And every time it was said, I thought like, that is not resonating. It's not working as a message because in the end, people really only think about themselves and they see other people as enemies to themselves. And even when I thought about my own heart, I was like, what's interesting is I am also intensely self-protective. And so I thought, how can I be safe? My second thought was always how to make others safe. And so I want to be honest about that, that I didn't sort of come into masking from an altruistic point of view, but even the inability to do the work to take the second step, to learn that the world is not just about oneself, um, I think is huge. Um, And I also think that we learned um, that we living in a in a time and in a community where people, um, where all communities of folks, not just white folks, not just conservatives, people on the right, are susceptible to disinformation and misinformation. Yeah, right? 
Yeah. You know, watching Black communities really struggle to make sense of the, you know, admittedly muddled public health messaging around COVID, watching the way that we adopted conspiracy theories, watching the way that we, too, say things like I'm doing my research and then refusing to, like, take good safety precautions. Um, I said, well, this doesn't sound very different to me than the folks that I know get all their news from Fox News. And so... How do we make sense of that as a community? How do we tell each other the truth when, um, you know, when there seems to be real deep distrust, not only of medical institutions, but governmental institutions that is founded, but it has constrained our ability in this moment to tell the truths we need, need to tell to stay alive. Um, and, and I yeah. find that that is urgent to me um, and it is at crisis level. No, I agree. And the irony is that it always ends up disproportionately impacting people of color and community. And and I'm really at a loss sometimes when I hear the way in which the Black community, some segments of the Black community have so bought into uh, some of these conspiracy theories. Initially, you know, sort of on this historical foundation of mistrust that has been built over a long time. And now, you know, using that, and it's as if that's now used against us, and we're still being killed uh, (laughs) because we won't take the medicine. First, we were killed because they were giving us the medicine. And now we're being killed because we won't take the medicine. And I just don't know. What we're talking about is the confounding nature of white supremacy, right? How do we get out of that? Uh, Brittany, to the truth. Yeah, look, I, you know, I think that the harder part is recognizing, you know, I do a whole unit in my classes now on disinformation. And the reality is that, you know, knowledge is social. We actually, none of us has the capacity to know everything there is to know. And so we have people that we trust to tell us the truth. And the, the challenge is that disinformation moves at a very fast speed and trust moves at a very slow speed. And on top, you know what I mean? And so we, what you need is these sort of relationships where you can get in there with people and folks that you trust can kind of compel you. But we don't live in a world that is able to facilitate that trust. We also don't have, we, we've seen a, you know, an erosion of institutions like the church, right? Which were these communities of trust and faith that even if there were schisms and contention, that, you know, a person could stand, a, the pastor, your, your deacon, your Sunday school teacher, and come together and say, here's what we need to do for the health of the community. But the, the consequence of folks being disconnected, even from faith communities in our community, is that there's no central location to get information out and to, you know, to be able to sit and to think and reason together about what is the best set of approaches. And so... Um, I think we are in a massive disinformation crisis, and I think that that is compounded by the fact that because Black people have been so abused by by misinformation and authoritative knowledge systems in the past, um, you know, we have a legitimate reason to uh, to be, you know, to have healthy skepticism. And I ask myself over and over again, what would like a Black feminist framework say to this because we're the ones that say trust your own knowledge trust your spirit you don't it's not just the empirical um but you know a friend said to me yes but what we never said was don't trust good sense though for, you, know, <laughs> you know what i mean like good sense is at the heart of the black feminist project and sometimes our people i think are trying to be so woke and so um resistant to governmental top-down intervention that they're also letting it impede what good sense would say. 
as my grandmother used to say, you know what? Use the common sense you were born with. Come on. Uh, uh, and I always think there's a fine line, right, between black health and what I like to say and black paranoia. Uh, uh, and we have to find that line. I want to I want to follow this masking, unmasking metaphor. Uh, I went uh, a little further and that at the same time, we now find ourselves, which I again think is no accident in this moment of people uh, in this fight against critical race theory, which we all know the people who are against it don't know what it's about. Uh, and what's really at, at stake, it seems to me, is that there is this fear of a different gaze upon the nation's history. What? What? Is it that you believe they are afraid will be unmasked if we indeed talk about our history in a different way? I mean, here's the thing. Um, I think that the reality is that there is no moral or political legitimacy at all to the white supremacist project that we have been subjected to. That's it, right? That's the core of it, that here you have people who live on stolen land, who stole people to work those lands, who have for the better part of four centuries exploited those people and decimated them through uh, it, political decisions that continue to be about white dominance. Um, raising a generation of children who know that and who then come home and around the dinner table say, well, can't, should we celebrate Thanksgiving, right? <laughs> well, why is, you know, is Jesus white? Right. You know, who begin to ask all of these fundamental questions that scares, I think, these parents who have grown up with a version of the world in which, you know, and, and I think about this a lot because I grew up in the 90s. And in the 90s, we had this narrative of ourselves as a country that was was moving towards the integration project that was liberal, that was, you know, completing the, the, the great 20th century. Right. And I have watched the kids that I know as a child would have said my grandparents' racism was racist and wrong become rampant, rabid Trump supporters. And I spend a lot of time trying to think about what that is. And I'm like, oh, but there were two possibilities. One was that they could get on board with a progress that was more multiracial. The other was that they could, you know, tether themselves to their white supremacist roots. And faced with the, the presidency of Barack Obama, I think they recognized how unready they were. And now they've made us all pay for it for the last decade, you know? Yeah, uh, and, and, we, and we know in, in history that any time Black people have made any measure of progress, white right. supremacy hangs on even more tight. <laughs> I like to say, stands its ground. And so in many respects, we're seeing that. The interesting yeah. thing, and you talked about the children, white parents uh, going into these school boards and saying they don't want their white children to feel bad That's about right. being white. And and what strikes me is that for decades if, and, and longer, black children have had to sit in classrooms listening to this history as long as well as other children of color. And no one cared that they were made to feel bad. And that right. planet within them, right, as Audre Lorde would say, is that piece of the oppressor inside of them. Brittany, how in this time when whiteness has become truth, uh, how in this time are we ever to begin to extract uh, that piece of the oppressor that is deeply rooted inside of us? Even as people of color, even at age 64, I'm still trying to extract because I said in them classroom spaces, right? Uh, and our children still do. So what do we do when that no one cares about our children? Yeah. You know, I, 
you know, I think about this a lot. I was very angry last week and did a few TV segments about how Condoleezza Rice had said that we shouldn't make white children feel bad. And what do you do yeah. when you have a black woman who who survived the, you know, who survived in Birmingham, who lived through the Birmingham church bombing, you know, becoming a voice for those who don't want to tell the truth about the historical forces that led to that very kind of tragedy, right? But, you know, in the end, I think that the only thing that I that I think we can say is that we continue to fight like hell. We continue to struggle. We continue to tell the truth, as we would say in the church, in season and out of season, right? Um, in part because, you know, you know, one of the things I said, too, in response to Condoleezza was, why do we think that we don't have to teach white children to be anti-racist when black children are experiencing racism? Right. And they're and they're not just experiencing racism at the hands of structures and school systems and adults. White children are coming to school and actively being racist, right? And so I tell my own stories about the racism that white children committed against me in schools as an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old and um and how things haven't changed that much in that regard. And so if Black children are old enough to experience racism, then white children are old enough to learn about it. And that has to be our stance. The other thing is, we have built a whole society in which we value white feelings over black facts. Yeah. I just will keep on saying this. You know, like where you talk about white women's tears. Yes. Come on. That's right. And so the thing is, white people's feeling that they are losing power is the basis for January 6th. Donald Trump, this Republican backlash. And the thing is, it's only a feeling by no metric that we can look at. Are they losing power other than that they are decreasing in population, but they are not decreasing in economic strength. They are not decreasing in political strength. They are not decreasing in ideological strength. And so they simply have the feeling that they are, and they then order the universe based upon how they feel. And then they resent those of us who say that's actually not true. And what becomes even then more concerning is these people know they're not telling the truth. The leaders among them absolutely know it's not the truth, right? But what they have told us, these evangelical Christians, is that truth is not a category that matters. And in that way, that was the thing that inspired my Holy Week reflection, because I'm always arrested by this moment when Pilate says, you know, as they're trying to hand over Jesus, well, what is truth? Right. And I'm like, well, at the point that you decide that truth is not a salient category, then you can do anything you want to do, right? <laughs> and that is what they have done. So, so what, you know, we are at this place where truth doesn't matter. Yes. At least, at least if, if anything other than white truth. And those two things yes. are together to me, whiteness and truth. <laughs> they do not. They, they, are, they do not. That's right. So wh wh who do we turn to? What then becomes the role right. in it of the faith community? Yeah. You know, who, who provide the moral leadership and what happens when the faith community, you're talking about the faith community and when they have been co-opted by the whiteness that is uh, uh, the truth that is whiteness. Who? Who's gonna, where do we I mean, turn? I mean, look, that is, that is why, so here's the thing. You know, Dr. Douglas, I got to read your book as a graduate student, and that's when I was exposed to these rich traditions of womanist theology. And, and the thing that I thought about is like, what would have happened if I'd had this material as a young person, right? What, what would happen if I'd grown up hearing preachers and going to church services with folk who knew this kind of information? Because what, what bothers me is, Here's the thing about church. 
Church is the one place that Black people go to consistently where we are able to express our feelings and say everything is not right, to cry and be held, to have someone affirm that our souls matter, that we are valuable to the divine, right? And then to actually take a text together and grapple with its meaning. Where else do you do that if you don't go to college? You lit- There's right. literally nowhere else that you get to do that. And so we should see that kind of gathering as precious for who we want to be as a community. And, and then, so that is why then preachers make me very mad when they don't then give people better frameworks to understand experience. And so, you know, so I think that what we have to do is continue to encourage new generations of, of, of church leaders and even, even our elders. I would love it if our elders said more, you know, my dad, one time, you know, my dad helps me. We don't always agree theologically, but one thing he will do, you know, he, he, taught a more recently in the last five years or so a more expansive sermon about communion. And he said, look, people, you're welcome at the table, even if you don't feel worthy, you're welcome. And he was like, I didn't always think that way. And he just stood up one day and he said, but I preached it wrong. I preached it wrong. What if our elders said, you know what? My understanding has shifted and I preached it wrong. And then what would happen if young people weren't trying? Look, here's the other thing. I'm reading Dante Stewart's book, Shouting in the Fire, right now. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And it's majestic and it's it's helping me. But also, we had a generation of young people, and I, I barely escaped this. I was on the, the, the front end of it, who have come to believe that white evangelicalism is the proper way to do Christianity. Because Black churches, shorn of the political critique of the 60s and 70s, put themselves in... The, I think that basically black ministers looked at what white folks were doing and said, well, they doing so well with how they preach Jesus that maybe our people could do better if we preach Jesus that way, missing the point that they preached a Jesus that allowed them to exploit us and do better at our expense. Well, but that's exactly right. It is that all I can say to that is amen. It is that evangelical white Protestant Puritanism that has allowed for this sacred canopy that has enslaved Black people, that has, in fact, uh, uh, continues to legitimate our oppression. And somehow what I'm saying is that the Black church, and this isn't the first time uh, that it has happened, has seeded the ground, right? Well, Gayrod Wilmore once said that we've become de-radicalized. We've lost the roots and we've, we've begun to imitate the white church, even when we talk about the way in which it treated blues women, et cetera. And I want to, that's, so that's going to be, mm-hmm. that's good. But what's interesting, Brittany, when you talk about this is my own son said to me, you brought up the black Christ and it's the basis for which I, uh, uh, my forthcoming book, he said, okay, I get it. that Christ is black, but what good is that doing us now? Mm. And, and, mm. you know, and, and, and so what good is that? Well, well, here's the thing, right? A lot of this is about what are what is the basis by which we can continue to ally ourselves with the Christian project for those of us who do, you know? Um, because and, and that is the reckoning that I'm I'm with, right? It's like, well, I grew up believing a set of things about what it meant to be a Christian, and now I understand a different set of things about how well here Jesus was challenging empire, and here Jesus was saying, I stand with the least of these. And and here's the here's the thing that I actually say to my students a lot, right? And it irritates them because I have all of these grad students in gender studies, and they are like, you know, we don't do organized religion, you know. <laughs> and I say, okay, I say, but here's the thing: you want to have a revolution. Uh, which is something that people have, you want people to risk everything that matters to them for a revolution they've never seen. And I was like, the, only, the, the other word for that is faith. 
to ask people to do to to risk everything for a world that does not yet yet exist. I said the only other people I know who say things like that regularly are church folks, right? Who 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 say the world is broken and we can believe and then act in our belief in a way that leads us to something else. And so when folks come to understand that the revolutions they want are fundamentally faith propositions, then they might be able to understand. Not they ain't got to get on board with all of the tenets of Christianity, but they do then have to get on board with the idea that you got to have people got to be disciplined into the into the process of what it means to believe in something that does not yet exist that requires belief not skepticism not cynicism not um nihilism right none of those things belief is a a a, a continual practice every day and so if if black people come to understand that we get to have gods in our own image too right um that matters in terms of our ability to get on board with faith projects that actually perhaps like can bring about a new world, you know? Well, I, yes. <laughs> and, and I think of, and people have heard me say this before, and this will get me like my our time is going. So I'm going to rush through these. Yeah. next. Months. But um, uh, I think often, and I often say of the black women, and I think of my great grandmother who was born in slavery, who, who was, uh, Black women who were born in slavery, died in slavery, never breathed a free breath, never, ever dreamt that they would breathe a free breath. But they fought for freedom anyhow because they believed in the freedom that was the justice of God, right? They knew that it was going to happen. And and because they did that, that's why you and I can be sitting here talking. So so it leads me to what if (laughs) we changed our gaze and we didn't simply talk about the binaries uh, changing from a white gaze to a black gaze, but we changed our gaze and we talked about the people who sit at the intersection of a white heterosexist uh, patriarchal supremacist project. Yeah. Uh, uh, what would that gaze look like? What would it tell us about uh, history if we did it from the vantage point of black women? Mm. Yes. I mean, you know, now you're walking down Anna Julia Cooper Lane to me, you know what I mean? Who, you know, <laughs> you know, and, and look, Anna Julia Cooper, look, I, I reflect on that sister a lot because, you know, and so for me, she helps me in a couple of ways. One of the things is I think that black women have always been obsessed in their work, whether they were talking about religion or not, with what it means to live out live out things incarnationally, right? Yeah. Which is to say that, you know, in Black women's work, you is, so in my first book, I call this embodied discourse, but really I'm just riffing on a notion of the incarnation. I don't say it explicitly, but I'm really talking about the idea that we think that our job is to embody the best set of ideas about who we are. We we really do sort of sit in that thing about the word is made flesh, right? And so that's why we think that the words, the concepts, the discourse, the, the histories that our kids learn determine what worlds are possible for them, right? Determine what this blackness ultimately gets to mean. I think that, so, and look, that's a black woman's thing. It's like, I had a kid ask me the other day, well, when you see Du Bois and he says, you know, my, you know, I'm Tunis, my soul, you know, two worn bodies in one, one, you know, in one dark soul, you know, that thing, right? And I said, well, black women don't, in that same period, don't talk about it that way. Black women don't talk about the Tunis as a thing that rips them apart. You have Cooper saying, oh, it gives me a special vantage point. That's why other people can't see as well as I can, right? And I think, 
That's the gendered piece, right? Men see that that as an existential struggle. Black women see it as an existential gift. Um, and I and I think uh, you know that that's where I would that's where I would start. Oh, I like that. It's not a it's not an existential struggle. It's an existential gift. But yeah. sometimes that gift uh, puts us <laughs> in these positions where we are. As Patricia Collins said, black women often always it seems our life is about being the outsider with men. Yeah, you and I are certainly in in the academy space, the outsiders within, and yeah. finding our having to lead across differences, being leaders across differences, even through our daggone rage. So, (laughs) Brittany, how do you lead and be a leader across differences? And I'm talking, you know, with our white sisters uh, uh, and and all those other realities, even through the rage. And that's where we always find yeah. You know, I've been trying to think a lot about leadership and 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 part of these days cuz I you know, I don't know how much I see myself as a leader in the traditional sense, but in part because I lack patience with foolishness and it it you know, it tends to create a problem. But I think that one is always the the sort of humility that says we all have our work to do, right? Um and I what I always want is the ability to sort of see I don't ever want to lose because of racism or sexism, the ability to connect with people um, at the level of shared interest or shared possibility. Right. Um, And I think that some and, and, and more to the point, what I often say to young people is it's not just enough to say the right things. It's not just enough to think the right things or to be able to outline a set of woke politics and use all of the right language. What do you do when you have to live that out in the messiness of people with community and what do you have to do? What do you do when you, do, does your leadership make space for people to be in process, to to earnestly be in process, not to be using process as a delay so they can continue to be raggedy and violent. But when folks are really willing to meet you at the table, are you prepared to journey with people in some way through that work? And so to me, that is what it means to lead across difference is I am a firm believer that if I both give the folks in my orbit tools that are useful, that I have found useful, but also if I am willing to be vulnerable about the places that I don't have it figured out yet, and I don't go in performing like I understand all of this stuff or I live out my feminist, radical, progressive, Christian, whatever revolution well every single day, then that gives other people the space to say, I'm still struggling with this or this doesn't make sense to me or are we sure XYZ thing, that's a real or more authentic revolution than saying all of the right stuff and then wondering why things fall apart. And it's because things fall apart because, because we be because because if you don't do the work of messiness around revolution, then you'll start to think that revolutions are only for the people who think like you and that you like. Yeah, no, I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. And it's messy work, right? Uh then yeah. I, I just always say, you know what, just at least. If you're on the arc that bends toward justice and you're you with integrity that you want to be there, then I can take the messiness and 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 all of yeah. that. But it's when when you when the it's, process yeah. is an excuse. Not yeah. To. Yeah. And here's the thing. But I also think that our spirits tell us that, though. Right. I think we know when folks are saying the right things, but they really are committed 
But I think that we're and the other thing, and another friend and I always talk about this. But sometimes we harder on the people that are showing up and trying than the folks who don't. And I and that's the thing I mean. And look, and I and I say that with the clear caveat that I know in particular in black communities that that is often used as a cloak to be harmful to trans folks and queer folks. And I want to be real clear that I'm not here for that. And that ain't what I'm talking about, right? We there, you ain't gotta understand how people show up. And here's the thing: if you listen, it ain't so hard to understand. So there's that, right? Listen and 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 lead from empathy, and then you can understand. But also, you can just call people who they are. You can just affirm that folks get to show up and live their lives without, you know, without because you know you, you can do that without a full understanding. So I'm not talking about that, but I'm saying that we also have a one of the things we have is a generation of young folks who have really sophisticated political language, critiques, and they're very impressive. But then when you get up close, you'd be like, well, why does this look so messy and right. messed up? And why is it all falling apart? And it's like, because what they don't necessarily have is the requisite emotional intelligence to go with all of that, those politics. Um, and in the end, revolutions are people. Politics are people. Churches are people. Governments are people. And if you can't deal with people, then the, your revolution is not a thing worth investing in. That's what I mean. Yeah, that, you, every time you say that, you remind me of the uh, 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 black poets who said the revolution uh, won't be televised. Right. But, uh, Come on. <laughs> That's what I mean, yeah. You know, and I'm dating myself, but <laughs> I'm going to get out on the last question, but also to say to you that, you know, one of the things that it seems to me before I will get into any kind of work with someone is that there has to be a shared agreement on everybody's common sacred humanity. If yes. we don't hear how they show up, that yes. uh, that everyone that has breath or has ever had breath is sacred because their breath is sacred. Uh, okay. uh, and so if we can't get on yes. that accord, then we can't we can't be in the justice work together because it's not justice work. That's so right. it leads me to the last question. I'm gonna get you out of here. Yeah. So with all of this said and done, and first it means we're gonna have to keep at talking, but what, Brittany, in your imagination mm. does a just society look like? Mm. Ooh, I mean, if I knew that, well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I, here's the thing. I, I think we've made this more complicated than it has to be. I think Black, I think black women's ethic and ethos, everybody has enough food to eat. Everybody has. Excuse me. I'm sorry. Look, let me finish. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, zooming uh, in a pandemic. Um, but, but here's the thing. Everyone has enough food to eat. Everyone has the education. Everyone has the space to learn, to grow, to ask questions. We lead from a question about what does safety look like for the least of these, for, for young people, for children, for folks with disabilities, um, for the poor, right? We don't accept the idea that we have to have a world in which poor people are permanent. But right. we, we, we build a world in which sufficiency is our standard, right? Um, and, you know, and we also think, you know, we got to think too about notions of accessibility all of us will not always be in these you know 
able-bodied bodies able to do everything. If you have elders in your life, they will just say, baby, wait on time. Things will change. But we, but we can build a world where, you know, whatever people's ability is in terms of bodily capacity and mental and emotional capacity, that we are, we honor that and that we seek to do no harm, right? Um, and so that's what I hope that we begin to think in notions of safety. We begin to think in notions of doing no harm. We begin to think in notions of sufficiency and care. And quite frankly, I think we also going to have to let go of our investment in capitalist productivity and performativity. Yes. You know, we are not what we produce. I heard a minister say many, many, many years ago at this point, the minister is more important than a ministry. The person is more important than what they produce. And we don't actually believe because here, here's the thing. How do you reconcile that when we also say, well, I want to be of some be part of something bigger than myself? I always think that that's at that 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 thinking actually gets us in a hard place because it feels true, except for that then we often then continue to sacrifice ourselves because we want to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And that thinking leads us to a place where we don't then have a proper valuation of ourselves. And black women suffer the most in that sort of thinking. We martyr ourselves. We we you know, and we say, well, no, the work is bigger than me. And this is not just about me, but you matter, too. And so if you, what does it mean to commit to a life of work that you say matters so much more than you that that in the end you feel demoralized because you don't know where you matter in the work that you came to do? No, I got to ask that question. That's a perfect way to end. And that's right. Then that's that's how we get this language of being an yeah. essential worker. But that essential worker is not considered an essential human being. Come on. Essential right. workers first and foremost, essential human beings. That's right. Uh, Dr. Brittany Cooper, thank you so much, not simply for this conversation, but for the work that you do uh, uh, and for the homegirl intervention that you give all of us all the time. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you. Thank you you for listening to Just Conversations with Kelly Brown Douglas. These 30-minute conversations are featured on the EDS at Union Facebook page. Videos are also available on the Union YouTube page. The audio edition can be found wherever you stream podcasts. Please like, subscribe, and share.